I'm Kevin O'Coin. I'm Brian Ackley. This is Life in the Rough, the podcast. With a special bonus episode for you, we have an interview with Christian Williams, also known as the Hickory Hacker. Christian's a Hickory Golf Ambassador, as well as the president and co-founder of the Connecticut Hickory Golf Association. We're about to cut to the interview now, so enjoy. Awesome. Great stuff. Um, so Christian, before we get into it, um, would you just be able to quickly tell our viewers, you know, just describe what a hickory hacker is and, and then you can you know, talk about how you got into it. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, just quick definition of what a hickory golfer is in, in general. Uh, we're playing with playing golf with pre 1935 antique golf clubs, wooden shafted golf clubs. Uh, 1935 is kind of the defining date in golf equipment history when steel shafted clubs became the norm and wooden shafted clubs kind of became part of the bygone era. So we kind of play the game with antique clubs. We play um, uh, some reproduction clubs, but most people are playing with legitimate antique, you know, golf equipment. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how long have you been doing this for? All right. So I've been interested in hickory golf for about three years. Um, It was kind of a passing interest at first. Um, My first real taste of it, I guess, was um, a video that I saw on YouTube with Eric Anders Lang. Uh, He was doing an adventures in golf where he played in a hickory golf tournament. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I've been playing golf for 30 years. So, um, you know, I was, you know, playing for a long time at that point. And I just was really interested in the history aspect I, you know, was, I've got a history degree um, into antiques already. So there was kind of a natural inclination to just kind of be interested in the history of golf in general. But it wasn't until I actually watched that video and saw other people playing it, um, mostly older guys. Um, but I was like, you know, I think I want to try that. So I kind of set it aside for a little bit. And as I was looking for more antiques, I would start to come across the clubs and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could maybe learn how to fix these up because I could tell that they weren't playable in the condition I was finding them in. Um, so I bought my first three or four clubs from an antique store in April of 2019 and brought them home. They, I found out after the fact they were all ladies clubs, uh, which is a pretty, <laughs> a pretty common thing because the clubs that you're going to find in antique stores are usually castaways from people's basements, attics, barns that they weren't even really playing back in the day either. So a lot of them are rusted. They're really light a lot of times in the swing weight scale, um, but they were they were my start. So um, figured out they were ladies clubs, figured out that I needed to get heavier clubs. And that's when I started to learn like some specific repair stuff that um, I was able to, to start testing on these clubs, you know, that um, I didn't care about as much so that when I got the ones that I did care about, I knew how to fix them right. Very cool. Now, did you get into the actual playing of Hickory Golf or collecting of Hickory Golf before you got into the repairs or kind of w- what came first there? Um, I went out and played with those first four clubs that I bought and found out that they were not working for me. Like when you play with, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to play with clubs that are too light for you, but on a, most modern clubs these days are in the D range of the swing weight scale. So you don't really have a lot of variance, but in antique golf clubs, they could widely range from, you know, off the swing weight scale heavy to off the swing weight scale light. So the clubs that I bought were too light and I was spraying the ball all over the place. So I was like, I wasn't frustrated by the fact that um, I, well, I was frustrated by the fact that uh, I wasn't hitting it straight, 
but I was giving myself some patience because I knew these, these were hard clubs to hit. So once I figured out that uh, the weight of the clubs makes a huge difference, um, I got better on the course with them. And that's when I really took off with playing more, more often and um, joined the Society of Hickory Golfers, which is the national organization for people like me. And um, <laughs> then, um, yeah, then I started playing in events and that's where you meet other people like me who uh, have tons of clubs that, you know, they trade. Uh, it's just a cool little subset of, of golf. And um, yeah, uh, I just, I have so much fun doing it more so than I ever did playing with modern clubs that I haven't played with modern clubs now since August of, let's see, August of 2020, no, August of 2019. It's almost been two years that I haven't played with a modern club. I've only played with hickories. Wow. Do you, uh, do you keep a handicap with the hickories? Yeah. So I had a gin handicap and, uh, that kind of gets us into why did I really start playing with hickory clubs or be even more interested in it? Um, my gin handicap kind of plateaued at 17.6 for a full season. And I had, you know, a, you know, nice set of Mizunos. I had, you know, latest Titleist driver. And I was just frustrated that I couldn't get my handicap lower. And I suppose that I could have taken lessons and all that stuff. But for me, you know, being in the men's club of the local course that I was at in uh, Kansas, um, I just felt like I was not having fun. And to me, like, unless you're a professional, either training, you know, teaching people or playing the game for a living, you should be having fun playing golf. I mean, yes. and I wasn't having fun anymore. I just, I was too hung up on score. I was, you know, frustrated that my handicap wasn't getting lower. So I was starting to, you know, skip Wednesdays when I could have been playing with the guys. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, there's no reason I should be this hard on myself, A, and B, I should be figuring out how to have fun again. And that coincided with when I really started to get more interested in hickory. And so then I started showing up to men's club with hickory clubs and everybody else was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, these are... <laughs> These are ancient clubs. And I'm like, I'm having more fun playing this way than I ever did playing with moderns. And uh, a couple of guys, you know, picked up a club and tried it and like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, and so from there, it was just kind of like, all right, I think I found my niche. This is where I can actually enjoy the game again. And I truly, I mean, it's a cliche, but that's, that's where I fell in love with golf again. Like when I was in eighth grade and played for the very first time you know, on a little, you know, nine hole or par three course, you know, it was just kind of like re reintroducing myself to the love of the go of, of golf again. Right. Oh, that, that's really interesting. Especially, I mean, it, it's funny because you're saying your, your handicap kind of started to plateau. And in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, how can I make the game easier? And you're like, no, you know, what? I'm just going to make the game harder. <laughs> I'm going to go to the Hickory clubs. <laughs> well, see, this is the great thing about it though. It's like, um, you know, there are Hickory guys who are serious about score and stuff and they still keep track of all that but I don't care about score anymore. Like I I've played, you know, handicap season started on April 1st and I don't maintain a modern gin anymore. Society of Hickory golfers maintains my handicap now. So, um, and they've got a whole system set up that's similar to gin and they're actually trying to um, get it set up with the world uh, handicap thing that started a couple of years ago. Uh, but anyway, that aside um, I've played several rounds already this year where I didn't even keep score. And that would have been unheard of for me four years ago. I mean, I couldn't have walked off the course without knowing what I, what I, what I played that day in order for me to feel like I had a good time. So, um, yeah, it's gone the opposite direction for me. The game is a lot harder than it was before. 
uh, from a, you know, a technical perspective and equipment perspective, but I'm having a hell of a lot more fun playing it. That's, yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I mean, can't imagine how satisfying it is when you hit one out of the middle on, on one of those things. Cause I can't imagine it happens too frequently. Right. Well, yeah, it happens maybe once or twice around. Um, but it's like that old adage about when you, um, you, you get one good shot in your round that brings you back for the next round. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with hickory golf. Like, um, you could have a shitty round and then one shot makes you feel like, Oh man, I just, I hit that club exactly how it was designed to be hit. And that's what brings you back. And, you know, then there's also the fact that you've, you know, you don't have a matched set of clubs. You've got maybe six or seven clubs that are all from different makers. They've all got their own personalities. Uh, You've got a personal history with finding and repairing and playing each one of those clubs. So you've got like a kinship with your equipment that you don't have with modern equipment. And that's what helps, I think, um, bring you back out every time because you're just you're experiencing the game in a way that you just don't experience it on a modern golf level yeah and you had mentioned um the hickory golf association how large is that how many how many members are there oh that's a good question um it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years the hickory heyday was usually like uh considered the mid 90s through the early 2000s and i think kind of the decline of membership somewhat coincided with the 2008 recession Mm -hmm. um but it's on an upswing now so to answer your question i don't know how many people are in it anymore but there are a lot more regional groups than there were before And and that's kind of what comprises the national organization are all of these individual state groups that host their own events and then cooperate with other states if they're nearby and then end up becoming a large enough organization to host the national event. There's a U.S. Hickory Open, which um, has been the Society of Hickory Golfers has been around since 2000, uh, 2000, yeah, 2000. And I think the the u.s hickory open probably started in 2006 something like that but that's become like you know the the big big event of the year but all these regional groups now are starting events that are just as large and just as widely attended in some instances as the uh the main national event so how many people would you say are playing in these regional events um it's that's a smaller number i mean uh the the larger ones usually get probably you know, up to 50 guys, I would say. Um, but there's some interesting things happening lately. Um, the, the event that I'm going to play in in Florida at the end of May is the one of the first Hickory events that's um, basically supervised and uh, not sanctioned, but really well coordinated by the State Golf Association. So they're expecting about 50 to 60 people for that event. And that's significant for a Hickory event. Um, because not only do you have the Florida State Hickory golfers playing in it, but you've got probably brand new people from the Florida State Golf Association showing up to it. And I think that's going to end up being a, a template for other regional groups to try to get their state golf associations coordinated with their Hickory Golf organization so that you reach, reach a wider audience with your emails and, and you know, your uh, registration stuff. So I think we're on the cusp of something big. And I, I, I say that, you know, I, with a little bit of a bias because I'm seeing more people interested in what I'm doing with it, but I think it's, it's kind of widespread. There's more interest now and social media has certainly helped with that too. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're talking about the, the regional um, sections as well, you're the, or you're the, what, the president of the Connecticut section, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So Sounds legit, though. Yeah, it does. It, and I've got a business card that says it, too. Um, no, so, yeah, the interesting thing with that is, um, so my wife and I moved to Connecticut uh, last July. She got a job at UConn, so we decided to move in the middle of the pandemic um, from Kansas. And um, before we moved, the first thing I did was figure out where am I going to play golf? And is there anybody out here already playing hickory golf? And fortunately, I um, found plenty of great golf courses. And I found somebody who was doing the same thing with hickory golf that I was trying to do in Kansas. So I was one of the founding members of the Kansas hickory group, but we weren't able to do anything because COVID hit and our event got canceled and we couldn't even get together to play. So I was bummed by that. But when I found Jacob Orcutt, who had started a website, um, first of all, he's into, into hickory golf. He's also a history nerd like I am. And he did a comprehensive index of all of the golf courses in Connecticut that still have um, pre-1935 routing. So it's basically a resource for anybody interested in hickory golf to figure out what golf courses in Connecticut you can still play hickory golf on that are pretty close to what they were in hickory golf days. So when I found that website, I was like, holy shit, this is like exactly what I was looking for. And it's somebody that I'm going to be able to, you know, interact with on a regular basis. He also happened to live in, in Coventry. So I'm like, well, there's got to be something weird going on here that with the stars <laughs> lining up this way. So I reached out to him and he was obviously excited to hear from me. And um, we decided at, at, through Facebook messages basically to start the Connecticut uh, Hickory Golf Association. And he named me the president. I was like, are you sure you want to do that? Because I don't know how to be a president. <laughs> And um, he's like, yeah, because I don't want to be the president. I was like, all right, well, I'll do it. Um, and he then I think like we're guy. both considered, yeah, yeah. We're both considered co-founders of the group. Um, and so there's nothing to it other than that's what we call each other. But I'm finding that, you know, when I send emails to people who don't know who we are, it's a nice little signature line to have on there. Um, and they take me somewhat seriously then. So, yeah, that's that's that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brian and I are both in sales, so we know all about how much a title, how good a title can look. Yeah. C yeah. CEO of Life in the Rough. I would expect a, I would expect a call yeah. back. Chief yeah. Operating <laughs> Officer and President. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. You, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, um, once I got out here, uh, you know, we started playing a little bit. And then we started thinking about, okay, let's do an event. And um, so this year, finally, now that COVID's starting to lift, we're able to do some of the stuff that we were hoping to do at the end of last year that just never happened. And um, we're, we've had our, we just had our third um, casual get together where we play nine holes somewhere in Connecticut yesterday, uh, played at Keeney Park. Ooh. And um, yeah, a couple of weeks prior to that, we played at East Hartford, but only because it was the only course open that day. Muni. Um, yeah, and then a uh, week before that, we played at Fenwick. So um, I love I, I love Fenwick. So I used to work down in Essex. Yeah, uh, there we go, Look, guys. He's a fan of the podcast. He knows that I <laughs> I worked yeah. in Essex. Um, yeah, no, Fenwick's a yeah. nice little track. It really is. Yeah, it's great. Um, and you know, there are some things that obviously have changed over the years, but when you're looking at courses that are from the late 1800s, if there's any resemblance to what it used to be, it's still totally worth playing for Hickory golf. And that course has held up real well for Hickory golf. Um, and actually, I don't know if we'll get into this necessarily, but, um, you can play gutty golf there, which if you really want to get nerdy about Hickory golf, gutty golf is playing golf with pre 1900 golf clubs, smooth faced irons, 
uh, long nose woods, um, totally different game actually than hickory golf even. Uh, it's mostly a ground game. Fenwick was around then. Uh, Woodstock Golf Course up in Woodstock, Connecticut also dates to 1896 and is probably, in my opinion, one of the purest gutty golf courses you can find anywhere uh, because it hasn't been changed much over the years. Wow. So you usually play courses that are you know pretty hilly because the gutta percha golf ball, the late 1800s, just didn't fly very well. You could have the purest shot you've, you've ever hit and it only go 180 yards. So it needs to roll. So you use the ground. Yeah. And uh, Fenwick's great for gutty golf. So I'm going to be going back there to do a course vlog sometime in the near future to do that. I bet Donald Ross has some good courses then for, for that type oh, of yeah. golf. Yeah. Donald Ross is kind of like the, the, the most common course that you'll find a Hickory regional group doing an event at, they'll find a Donald Ross course. Cause first of all, he did like 460 something <laughs> courses. So and that's, that's a legit number. I'm not even just pulling that out of my ass. That's like a real number. Um, ton of tons of courses by him. Um, and, you know, he was one of those architects that uh, was great about using natural terrain to its, its greatest advantage for golf. So you don't see a lot of manufactured nature on his courses. Mm -hmm. All of those things match up the essence of what we're after, the spirit of the game, that kind of thing with Hickory Golf. So, yeah. I saw that you guys are having, or um, Shenacosset down in Groton is going to be hosting an inaugural yep. event for you guys this year. Yes. Yeah. That's what we were hoping to try to get at the end of last year. It just didn't pan out. Um, we reached out to Yale uh, earlier this season, but they're pretty locked down still. Um, so they're not really capable of doing an event like we wanted to do, but Shenacosset was our second choice and they were all for it. So um, yeah, that's June. June 26th is our event at Shenny. Oh, so. June 26th. I would be there, but I'm actually going to be heading down to Myrtle Beach with my wife. We're going to do a little anniversary slash golf trip. So yeah, I, 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 I will be there in spirit because I yeah. love Shenacosta, as you probably yeah, know from the podcast. Yeah. But I, I'm so curious. So what is the difference that the length of the course plays? Now, I guess I don't yeah. care in total, but I really care about the par three fourth hole, how you guys play that, because that's already, yeah, that's already a beast to begin with. And I've got 14 clubs in my bag that I can choose from. A putter I've definitely considered. So yes, I'm counting 14 clubs for that hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, how long does it play? Because it's a beast to begin with being uphill you know, almost 200 yards from the blues. Well, I have to be honest. I actually haven't played Shenny yet, so I need to get out there before our tournament, but I can tell you, generally speaking, how we attack longer part threes, which we actually run into fairly frequently on Donald Ross courses. Cause he liked to challenge golfers with, you know, longer part threes. Um, so I'm not surprised at all to hear that there's one like that at Shenny. Um, with an egg shaped I, green, it's a dome. It, it, oh, great. it, it is literally <laughs> one of the most difficult holes ever. I heard a story about Arnold Palmer who had said that he had played it before, um, during his time in the service. And he said, have they blown up that hole yet? Because it's such a beast. You literally have to hit before the green and run up on it. Good luck trying to land on the green because it's just a dome. It runs off every which way. Yeah, that's well. So Ross was known to use uh, what's called a volcano hole. I'm not sure that that one qualifies as a true volcano, but um, the way that I would attack it would with my uh, 21 degree spoon. Um, so that club I can max out at about 200 yards, but it's a nice club for lofting the ball a good distance. I'm not a big hitter. I wasn't a big hitter with modern clubs. So 
you know, it's, it, there's a translation that happens the same way with modern clubs. Like if you're a big hitter with modern clubs, you usually figure out how to be a big hitter with hickory clubs. And, um, you know, some guys might be, be able to get on there with a mid iron, which is usually the modern equivalent to a uh, four iron, four or five iron, as far as loft is concerned. Um, but that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm using my wood on that hole and, and praying that it stays up there. And um, we had we had touched on this a little bit, but you had said these these clubs are very durable, correct? This, this yeah. hickory is strong. Yeah, yeah. So when these clubs originally made back in the 1920s, 19 teens, they were using old growth hickory for the most part for the shaft in the first place. So you're talking about you know trees that were probably 75 years old up to that point. If the club has been generally not just sitting in water for 50 years, or you know you know, not too dried out, you can revitalize it enough to make it playable again. And, and that's the first question people ask me when they see me playing with these is, aren't you afraid the shaft's going to break? And I say, no, because, you know, I, I've conditioned it and um, I've checked to make sure there aren't any cracks in it. And you can repair cracks too. So even if you do find one, you can use modern super glue, like a really thin super glue to get deep into the crack, clamp it, and the next day you're good to go. So there's certain things that we can do from a modern perspective to get what used to be an on, you know, a club that was no longer playable back into playing shape and the shafts, you know, if they do break and they have broken, I broke one last week. Um, you can find replacements real easy. And once you learn how to take the head off the shaft and, and re epoxy or epoxy the shaft back to the, the head, you can replacements real easy and there are actually um, contemporary golf club manufacturers like Louisville Golf and Tadmore Golf uh, that both make replacement shafts um, that you can buy but I prefer to find clubs with uh, vintage shafts because I think the wood's better mm -hmm. and um, even if I don't care about the head I'll buy a club in an antique store just for the shaft alone because I know I'll be able to use it in the future. right that makes sense really cool. I I wonder if Bryson's swing would be able to hold up with one of those shafts. I'd like to see him try. You know, there was um, a video, I think, with Kyle Berkshire uh, of probably last year or the year before or some other long drive guys where they went through the, the history of antique or history of golf clubs and they got down to hickory shaft clubs. And I mean, they were still swinging, you know, crazy speeds with it and somewhat getting, you know, decent distance. But the problem for them was they hadn't practiced with them enough to hit the sweet spot. So they were spraying them all over the place. Yeah. Um, but I think that once they practice with those enough that they'd probably be able to dial it in too. Oh, sure. A, a professional. I, and I mean, Berkshire, he's obviously making his way to try to be on the PJ tour switch from long driving, but he yeah. he's a beast. I, I had saw a video. It was a couple of years ago. I think it was from the U S open where Jordan Spieth went out with, with a set of clubs and tried to, you know, get around the course. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't even that easy for him. I mean, sure. He was still able to make contact with the ball, but they, they aired it on NBC or CBS, whatever they're playing it on. And you could see, that he was still struggling there were definitely some shanks yeah yeah and um you know i think that's the first thing people figure out when they start swinging these clubs is like okay i gotta slow my swing speed down i gotta focus on sweet spot accuracy more than anything else and once you do that you know the old cliche the club will do the work for you and you'll get more distance out of the hickory golf club when you hit the sweet spot than if you tried to swing it harder and faster but didn't hit the sweet spot i mean the sweet spot is tiny so the room for error is, is large and the forgiveness, there, there really isn't any forgiveness in these clubs. So they tell you exactly what you did wrong immediately. 
So they're great for that kind of feedback. Um, but yeah, even a pro um, is probably going to be trying to swing his, those hickory clubs like they're normal clubs. And, you know, the, the thing I think some people lose sight of is even pros have game improvement technology in their irons. They're not all using straight, you know, 1970s blades. They're, they're, they're using clubs that have, you know, cavity backs in some instances. And so there's some game improvement in their clubs that's close to what the average golfer's got in their clubs. And um, there's none of that in a hickory golf club. You know, it's, it's a, a slab of, of, you know, of iron that you're, you're trying to hit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, how would you say like a, so like a set of hickory clubs versus a modern set of clubs? So what would you say is the biggest difference just from like a, like a set composite, I don't know, like a modern set yeah. of clubs, like the number of clubs, a couple <laughs> wedges, like, no, oh, no, yeah. not, saying like you have like a set of wedges you have you have your irons either hybrids or voids and you have your driver and putter but like how does that differ compared to say hickory golf because i know you mentioned like the spoon yeah yeah you've got all these you got all these uh, right one of these different clubs yeah you've got excuse me you got a lot of archaic names um that are fun to talk about um the biggest difference is obviously the number of clubs you need in order to accomplish most of what you're trying to do on a golf course um, my set has nine clubs, so that's five, no, eight clubs, five irons, um, and then a putter and then two woods. And I would say that most hickory golfers probably don't have more than, you know, nine or 10 in their bag. Um, I think that's actually probably more than I need. Um, my gutty golf set, my pre 1900 set has five clubs total. And, um, Basically, the way that you build a set is you, you go off of uh, the degrees, you know, of each club. So I like to have about 10 degrees or maybe even 12 degrees of difference between each club, because what you figure out is you can do multiple, you know, a variety of shots with one club. Mm-hmm. So I'll take the Mashie, for instance. It's my favorite club. It's kind of the workhorse of my, of my set. It's 36 degrees of loft. So that would put it in around the range of a modern seven iron, eight iron, I would guess, something like that. Um, that's the club I use from 145 yards uh, if I'm trying to just fly a par three. Um, it's also the club that I use for runners from about 50 yards in. So again, hickory golf is more of a ground game than a modern game. So a lot of the clubs are designed to propel the ball on the ground. Um, the other thing to keep in mind here is that uh, this is another difference between modern clubs and hickories. Um, Modern clubs usually have some kind of flange to the back or, you know, extra weight um, that kind of makes them more playable on American golf courses, which are generally more wet. Um, You know, they're just, you know, there's a lot of those design techniques that help the ball or help the club dig through the turf easier. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at a hickory golf club, those were, especially the ones designed around, you know, 1900 to 1920, they were designed for golf courses like Lynx courses in, in uh, the UK, where the ground is a lot harder and you don't need the kind of flange that you get on a modern wedge. Um, you were just trying to pr- continue to propel the ball along the, the ground and use the terrain to your advantage. So with that in mind, you know, I'm, I'm basically, like I said, I'm building a, a set uh, based on the degrees between the clubs that I want. And I'm, you know, knowing that I can use a mashie for 
basically three different club, three different modern clubs shots in my in my bag. And that's kind of the, the philosophy to use through through the, the rest of your your set. Um, you know, back in Hickory days, there wasn't a rule about how many clubs you could carry. You know, you could carry up to 20 clubs under your arm if you wanted to or in your bag or have your caddy carry it because that's what he would have been doing. Um, so, you know, I think some guys like to <laughs> like to go that extreme because they've got a lot of cool clubs they want to show off. And so they'll bring their whole, you know, collection out with them. But um, I'm trying to stay a little more, you know, true to what the purpose of these clubs was originally and building my set around the idea that you can, you know, do multiple shots with one club. So that's a long-winded way to talk about set differential. Yeah, no, that, that was pretty much exactly what I was curious about. That was very interesting to listen to, to be completely honest with you. Um, another thing I was actually pretty curious about is you've, you obviously played golf for, I think you said close to 30 years with modern clubs. So you, you yeah. know, now you're, now you're doing the hickory thing. So that's kind of more what you're into, but is they obviously playing with the hickory clubs is much more difficult, but is there anything like any aspect of the game in particular that you would say is like the most relatively difficult compared to using a modern set of clubs? Yeah. Um, I say in my personal opinion, it's uh, figuring out what club you want to use off the tee. Because if you're not comfortable with the brassy, which is, um, it's basically uh, from a loft perspective, it's in between a, a modern driver, like 10 and a half degrees and your three wood, or maybe even your five wood, you know, low 20 degrees. Uh, so most brassies are usually like 15 degrees. And the nice thing about them is you can use them off the tee, but they're called a brassy because they have a brass sole plate that allows them to be used off the fairway. So if you, you know, come across a situation where there's rocks or something, you're not messing up the bottom of the club. So that's where the name came from. But it's a versatile club because it's basically your driver and your, your five wood in, or your three wood in one club. My issue is um, I don't know often where my swing at, is at each day. And sometimes it's easier to just hit an iron off the tee and not worry that you're going to be spraying the ball all day long with your brassy. Brassy, because the sweet spot is so small, you really got to hit it in the right spot. And it's probably the trickiest club, in my opinion, to hit. Um, close second is getting out of the sand. Sand is so fucking hard to get out of with hickory clubs. I can't even talk about it. Um, and I, it's, it's hard it's with my clubs. <laughs> it's a problem specific, not specific to me only, because there are other people that have this issue. But I cannot figure out what club to use to get out of the sand right now. And I, you know, it's the, it's the common theme in my course vlogs that I've got on YouTube, where inevitably there's a shot that I've got to hit out of the sand and almost inevitably I screw it up. So I'm still trying to figure out what club to use out of the sand. Uh, there are flange niblicks that would look like a modern wedge, but the, the characteristics of them are not the same. And you can't do the, you know, couple inches behind the ball, you know, uh, take sand out open your stance kind of approach that you do with the modern set though some guys do and it works for them i think they're just uh they're lucky because i can't get that technique to work for me so i'm still trying to figure that out hmm. interesting um so it, you, you kind of just like maybe think of another question talking about wedges it sounds like the majority of clubs they tend to be less lofted than say modern clubs what's like 
like you're not going to have a 60 degree hickory club i'm assuming right like what's the no most- it's really yeah it's really rare to find clubs that are lofted more than usually 56 degrees um you know and you got to keep in mind that they they weren't they weren't trying to gap wedges the same way that we do these days we usually want four or five degrees between three wedges that you're going to be using for different shots around the green I mean, you pretty much had one club that you would use for all of the shots that you have multiple clubs for today, and that's your niblick. So uh, generally speaking, a niblick will range from 45 degrees to about 56 degrees. And the guys that are really good with their modern wedges will search for 56 degree or 54 degree niblicks because it's closest to their modern wedge. Um, but because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn the game from a hickory perspective, I've thrown out anything that I used to know, or, you know, was remotely good at with modern clubs. And I'm trying to learn how to use these the way they were designed. So, you know, I, I usually end up using my 36 degree mashie for most of the shots that I was using a 54 degree wedge around the green. And it's because. I can figure out different ways to kind of, you know, manufacture a shot with that mashie, whereas they've designed a club specifically for specific shots these days. They just didn't do that back then. So you had to be more creative. So it's, it's much more of a feel game. And that's, I've always been a feel player to start with. So I really resonate with the aspect of feel with the hickory clubs too, where you're just trying to, um, visualize what you're trying to do with the shot and then just kind of create it. And um, it, th- again, that makes it more fun for me than just pulling the 54 degree wedge. Cause you know, that's your distance or, you know, that, okay, this is the flap shot I'm going to try to do with my 60 degree or, you know, whatever the case may be with modern clubs. Right. So okay. some of the photos that I saw um, with Hickory golf, you know, the, the um, attire at the golf course, is kind of in line with the times of the clubs you're playing with. Is that, is that par for the course? No pun intended uh, for (laughs) all the, every time you guys go out or is that just some people or just for tournaments or how does that work? Yeah, I would answer that question two ways because I think some people are put off by hickory golf because they don't want to dress up and they feel like, Oh, the only way I'm going to be accepted in the group is if I wear knickers and you know, a a newsboy cap and that kind of thing. So the first thing I tell people is like, you could show up in your regular golf clothes. We don't give a shit. You play, bring your hickory clubs and we'll play together and it'll be fine. Um, But the other answer to that question is if you're playing with hickory golf clubs, you've obviously got an appreciation for the game uh, at a different, in in a different level than, you know, if you were playing with modern clubs and I feel like there's an opportunity there to share your appreciation for the history of the game by what you're wearing. So if you show up and you don't talk to anybody, but somebody sees you, you know, wearing 1930s or 1920s golf clothes and you're playing with old clubs, most people are curious enough to walk up to you and say, Hey, what are you doing? You know, and, and they're right. genuinely curious. And that's where the conversation starts where you could potentially have a new hickory golfer on your hands. So I, I consider myself and call myself a hickory golf ambassador um, because when I play, I wear the whole guard, no matter where I'm playing or if I'm just playing nine holes, I'll dress up the whole way because I know it's an opportunity to get somebody else interested in hickory golf. That, that's awesome. And that's also quite the commitment, especially because in Connecticut here, we can have some humid days out on the golf. I know. Yeah, I played, um, I played Yale uh, last September 
and I was, um, when I was out there, one of the news stations, and I'm new to Connecticut, so I can't remember which one it was, but uh, they, they were They probably follow shooting. the podcast. It's, it's no big deal. Oh, yeah. they'll, they'll find out. <laughs> so um, it was about two weeks after they reopened, and uh, they were out there kind of doing a story about, you know, the course reopening. And uh, that particular day, I was wearing like a, a modern polo with my knickers and a Hogan cap, and I ended up getting on the news that day. So it was one of the one of the only times where I, I was like, oh, I didn't really go all out because I was trying to stay cool because it was a pretty hot and humid day that day. Um, but I still look totally out of place, which that's fine, because that's what uh, <laughs> that's what I'm after when when I'm playing with these clubs. So somebody asked me about them. I, I respect it. I, I Kevin and I, I mean, it's a little different, but we are both huge fans of the bucket hat. Yeah, yeah, it'll it'll draw some eyes, but we love it because it keeps us protected by the sun. Top of the ears, back of the neck, all yeah. around, yeah. just great. And if that doesn't work, we just hit it into the shade under the trees. Yeah, yeah. I'm dressing yeah, for me. I'm not too. dressing for you. <laughs> yep. I'll say this too about the knickers. Uh, they're surprisingly um, comfortable to wear even in hot weather. Um, I haven't gotten into this on my website or in my YouTube channel yet, but some people have started asking me, like, where do I get my knickers? And I basically uh, bought Under Armour match play pants um, and had a tailor um, or a seamstress modify them with the uh, elastic so I could wear them on my knees like knickers. So I have like modern golf pants that I've modified into knickers. That's and smart. I would, yeah, I would recommend that route because you can buy. Oh, here's the other thing, too. And this is, you know, I don't know, maybe my own personal issue with uh, hickory golf, but um you know, a lot of the old guys you see are going to be wearing what's called plus fours or plus sixes, where that means that the material is four inches below or six inches below the knee. And that's where you get that real kind of cartoony baggy uh, look mm -hmm. to a knicker. I'm not about that. I, I don't like having all that material <laughs> um, baggy around my legs. So I opted for what's more traditionally called knickers. And uh, it's it's more in line with what they were wearing uh, when they wore those kinds of pants, uh, early 1900s, like Harry Varden, people like that would have been wearing less baggy. And, and actually the European hickory players, we haven't even, I don't know if we'll even have time to get into this, but, um, the European hickory scene is vibrant. Like there are a lot of hickory players in Europe and those guys just without clothes in general, everything's more tailored. So their legs, you know, their, their knickers are more tailored to the leg. And I like that style better. So yeah, for me, the match play pant works real well. And I recommend that people do that rather than go to the, uh, you know, the route of just buying pre-made knickers that are probably going to look baggy and a little cartoonish. Makes sense. Very cool. That's, awesome. that's my sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christian, since you mentioned, since, since you brought it up, why don't you tell us about how it's how uh, hickory golf is thriving on in Europe. Cause I've seen sometimes is speed golf is also big over there, right? Yeah, I have seen that. Um, I'm not sure if the same people are playing uh, hickory golf and speed golf. Um, but what I have seen, and this is mostly just anecdotal through Instagram. Um, they're, they're a lot more uh, active in my opinion with their casual events. Um, I see guys going out all the time and they've actually had strict stricter lockdowns because of COVID than we have. So um, they haven't been as active in the last year that as they usually are, but um, yeah, there's a, a world Hickory open. That's a significant event. And there are a bunch of people from the U S going over to that um, this year. 
And uh, they'll play courses in Scotland, you know, true links courses. And, and I think that's the real appeal right. is, you know, the, the, the game was born, excuse me, in those places. And, um, you know, so mainland Europe has a pretty good hickory scene. They play a lot in Italy. They play in uh, Germany. Um, I think uh, Sweden. Yeah, I think Sweden has a group, a, a good group. And then they'll all play in each other's events and then do the World Hickory Open and, and attract our, you know, our guys from over here too. Nice. Would, um, do you think that the reason that it's so popular over there is, would you say the courses kind of lend themselves more to Hickory golf as opposed to the more American type courses, like the more link style courses out that way probably work better for the type of equipment, right? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, you know, definitely the Scottish uh, and the, the British uh, Hickory players, I mean, they've got it made because they're playing golf with the clubs that were made for those courses. Um, I think the issue in, in the U.S. is that uh, we have some great courses for Hickory, uh, both old, obviously, and new courses. Um, and I, I kind of credit, um, you know, the, the Tom Doak style of architecture that started in the 90s uh, as being kind of the um, I don't know, the, the gateway for American courses, modern American courses to be much more in line with the tradition of the game, uh, which therefore makes them fun for hickory golf. Uh, and, you know, Tom Doak then helped usher in a whole bunch of other like-minded architects that were doing things similar to Donald Ross, where you work with the land rather than, you know, try to manufacture nature on it. And um, so I think a lot of the courses that were designed in the 60s and 70s and in eighties, you know, those don't really hold up anymore um, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of people. Um, they're just not as fun. They're, they're a lot more, you know, um, in some instances penal than they should be. And just with a, a course that's good for hickory golf, you're really playing a course that's good for anybody because you usually are on wide open spaces where you're not losing a lot of balls and trees. Um, there aren't as many forced carries, so you're not trying to get over water as much, though that, you know, there are instances where you do have to do that. Just generally speaking, I would say that, um, you know, hickory golf is a way for anybody to enjoy golf. Uh, of course, I'm biased in saying that, but um, the way that you play hickory golf makes it easier for a beginner to the game, in my opinion, to kind of get bit by the bug. And even if they don't keep playing hickory golf, at least they'll have a taste of what it's like to actually, you know, see what a shot's supposed to do rather than lose a ball. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, we're, we're big on, I don't know, I mean, growing, growing the game of golf and whatever avenues you can take to, to make that happen is, is obviously awesome, whether it be with more modern clubs or the way you're doing it. Cause I'm sure there's people that would be more interested in hickory golf than they would be in modern golf. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I know I've asked all the questions I have for you. I think, I think Bry has as well, but uh, I mean, before we let you go, why don't you um, just let our listeners know kind of the best way to find you and your social media outlets, just so if, if they're more interested or they want to either get in touch with you or learn more about hickory golf, where can they find you? Yeah, hickoryhacker.com. That's the main website. Um, I have a YouTube channel uh, and all of this stuff, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. If you type in Hickory Hacker, you'll find me. Uh, but hickoryhacker.com is the uh, main spot to find links to all of those social media channels. Um, 
And yeah, if you're interested in trying this and you're in Connecticut or even in greater New England area, I have about 12 sets at this point that I can loan out to people and or sell if they like them. And um, I'm happy to kind of share what I've learned and, and get someone interested in hickory golf. That's awesome. awesome. Kev, I think we're going to have to get out there uh, this summer and try a little hickory. I will, I will personally get some uh, some modern pants tailored for me to look like knickers <laughs> so I can get out there with you. I own three pair. I'm not scared. About <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, hey, Christian, I again, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your day. This was a super informative and interesting conversation. I know I learned a lot of a lot of stuff that I didn't even know I didn't know. Um, <laughs> Cool. But again, it's, it's, it's been a blast. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to put all your, all your info in the show notes too. So people can find you more easily that way as well. But um, again, yeah, thanks for coming on. Great. I appreciate it guys. Keep up the great work. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the podcast. Thanks so much, Christian. We appreciate the support. Guys. Thanks for tuning in for our interview with Christian. Uh, we will be back next week. Hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Once again, this is life in the rough, the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in.